idea was that you could come to this show as a liberal, and you might become a better a better liberal listening to that point of view, or you could come as a conservative, and you might become a better conservative by learning about that position more. And Buckley was so confident in his views, he thought, well, if I argue with people, most people will agree with me. I'm going to win. <laughs> and so he was comfortable enough to show the other side, let it express itself, and let the chips fall where they may. That's Heather Hendershot, professor of film and media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Today we hear from Professor Hendershot about her recent book on William F. Buckley's famous political talk show, Firing Line, which ran from 1966 through 1999 and thus chronicled the massive political and cultural changes in America from the 1960s onward. The book is called Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line, and we talk about it. We also discuss the effect of the media on the political process today and how it might be improved. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Well, listeners, this is our second episode of the Common Ground podcast since last Tuesday evening when Donald Trump shocked much of the media establishment and indeed a lot of the country by winning the election and securing his spot as the next president of the United States. Uh, One question many people are asking is why did nearly everyone in the mainstream media, the pundits and the commentators and the pollsters, get this election so wrong? What were they not paying attention to and who were they not hearing? Well, in today's episode, we talk with Heather Hendershot, a professor of film at MIT, whose work often focuses on conservative media and political movements. In our conversation, Professor Hendershot discusses the conservative writer William F. Buckley's program Firing Line, a show you could watch to hear from nearly everyone in the political conversation, not just conservatives with whom Buckley agreed, but a range of folks on the left, civil rights leaders, feminists, black power activists, hippies, and many others. We talk about what made that program especially valuable at the time and how it differed from political talk shows and news programs that are on today. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Hendershot, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. My pleasure. Great to be here. So your book, Open to Debate, is about William F. Buckley's old television program, Firing Line, which ran from the mid-60s to the 90s. One of the operative words in your title and indeed throughout your book is open. The, the idea here is that the program, as well as its host, uh, was, was truly open to conversation, to difference and debate. So my first question is this. What was this program about and how was its host, William F. Buckley, uniquely open to debate? Well, the show, uh, which ran from 1966 to 1999, was called Firing Line, Initially, it was the idea that Buckley would put liberals and leftists on the firing line and come at them from a conservative position at a moment when, you know, Barry Goldwater had just lost his bid to be president. It seemed like conservatism was was dead and liberalism would sort of reign ascendant forever. So he wanted to go on TV and take the place of conservatism, which a lot of people thought was kind of nuts at the time, at the moment of the Great Society and post-JFK and LBJ. So he did have some hostile encounters, I would say, in those, those very early days. And one of the early producers called it a knockdown, what was a bare-knuckled intellectual brawl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but basically, he was uh, an intellectual and a gentleman and someone who had been trained in debate at Yale. And he really didn't want to just attack people. He wanted to have an honest intellectual conversation with people with whom he strongly disagreed. And so there were some people he disagreed with too much. You know, he didn't want an out-and-out communist on the show. He would have socialists on the show. One of his best friends was John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a great radical leftist um, economist from, from Harvard. Um, so he would have people he really strongly disagreed with, and they would talk things through. And the idea was that you could come to this show as a liberal, and you might become a better a better liberal listening to that point of view, or you could come as a conservative, and you might become a better conservative by learning about that position more. And Buckley was so confident in his views, he thought, well, if I argue with people, most people will agree with me, I'm going to win. <laughs> and so he was comfortable enough to show the other side, 
let it express itself and let the chips fall where they may. And so there's a, a confidence in his position, but also a confidence in people watching the show, that they are reasoned, that they will sit and listen. And of course, it's very different from the kind of sort of soundbite culture and argumentative culture that dominates, uh, say, on cable news now, on a lot of talk radio and so on. So you describe Buckley in your book as being, as you say, one of the central figures of post-war conservatism, but perhaps more importantly or more interestingly for for your purposes, you, you also suggest that Buckley's style, his kind of uh, patrician manner, his, his intellectualism and willingness to, say, you know, produce tons of copy for National Review and then run a mayoral campaign on the side, these things made him the perfect media personality at the time. So could you talk about that? Why was Buckley alluring to people in the 60s? Absolutely. Well, you know, he came onto the scene initially in the 50s with his book, God and Man at Yale, which was a bestseller around number 11 or 12. It kind of squeaked onto the bestseller list. And he was known as a public intellectual. But it was 1965 was the tipping point for him becoming really well-known because he ran for mayor of New York. And he was a protest candidate. He ran the conservative ticket. He knew he wouldn't win. Uh, when asked, you know, what's the first thing you would do if you won the election? He said, demand a recount. <laughs> because, you know, that seemed really unlikely. Um, but he wanted pro- to protest that Lindsay, John Lindsay was running on the Republican ticket to be mayor of New York City. And Lindsay wasn't really conservative. And this was not, you know, it, he, was, he, Buckley and his compatriots wanted to pull the Republican Party farther right. And at the same time, they wanted to get the kooks, the nuts, the John Birch Society people out of conservatism. They didn't want people like the John Birch Society or even people like George Wallace to be seen as exemplary conservatives or Republicans in any way. So the image of conservatism in the 60s was that they were all kooky. They were all extremists. They were people who thought that the fluoridation of water was a communist conspiracy. And he wanted to get that conspiratorialness out. He wanted to push it out. And so he was doing something political, but to get back to your initial question, he was also reshaping the image of conservatism and showing that conservatives could be urbane and sophisticated and, uh, you know, go to Ivy League schools. (laughs) They didn't have to have a kind of backward bumpkin, uh, even redneck kind of image some of them have. And so with that mayoral campaign, he became the public face of respectable conservatism. Mm. And in fact, during that campaign in 65, just a year before Firing Line went on the air, there was a newspaper strike. And this was a huge shot in the arm for the Buckley campaign, even though, of course, they weren't going to win. But suddenly there was more TV coverage of the mayoral campaign uh, than there normally would be, because at that point, radio and newspapers were, you know, where more coverage was going to be of a big New York City campaign, less on TV. And so there was more TV coverage to sort of compensate for the shutdown of of the New York City newspapers. And he could go on the air with Lindsay and kind of uh, elegantly show off his sophistication as a rhetorician and as a voice of conservatism. Well, another a number of questions come to mind about a variety of the things you just said. I guess I'll start. I guess I'll start here. So you mentioned that Buckley was kind of so confident in his argumentation that he would actually bring on leftists. And in, in your book, you mentioned hippies like Allen Ginsberg and feminists and and representatives of the Black Power movement onto his show and talk with them for an hour. The the perhaps mm-hmm. unintended but certainly welcome effect for many viewers was that, say you were a liberal, you might actually become a better liberal by watching the show. So could you talk about that? Uh, are there any examples of episodes where, where Buckley just willingly brings on someone who actually does best him on his own show? Well, um, that's a good question. There were definitely guests he, you know, he was pretty confident, and he, I think, most often thought he had sort of won the discussion, mm. especially if he had on someone who was kind of more on the far left side, like when he had he had Eldridge Cleaver on and Huey P. Newton, and they were very extreme in the kinds of things they were saying, very revolutionary, and he just felt, well, most viewers are going to decide for themselves that I'm the more sort of rational position. But he really did have people on who he ultimately by the end thought, wow, they did just a really a bang-up job. One example is Muhammad Ali, Mm. who 
uh, was on the show to discuss why he was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. And Buckley thought that his uh, resistance to joining the Army was uh, not sincere. You know, that was his position when, when Ali came on the show. He thought he just wanted to get out of serving, and he didn't really buy the, the faith arguments that Ali had made. And Ali made a really strong argument on the show, and he changed Buckley's mind. And he also, this was kind of a very interesting moment on the show, um, Buckley was asking some very complicated questions, and Muhammad Ali said, you know, Mr. Buckley, I barely graduated from high school, and I think maybe I did in part because my teachers kind of gave me a, did, a, did me a favor. <laughs> you know, I was a poor student. And uh, when you talk that way, it's actually very hard for me. I can't really follow everything you're saying. And he basically said, you know, bring it down a notch. And Buckley responded like an excellent host at a dinner party, right. you know, where if, you're, if your guests are uncomfortable, you change the topic, you change your approach, you, you know, you, you make them comfortable. And so he said, okay. And so he, you know, spoke in a way that was more comfortable for Ali. And I think he, that was somewhat disarming for him, you know. Mm. And about two weeks after that appearance, Muhammad Ali was at a press conference and he said, you know, I KO'd Buckley. And on the very last episode of Firing Line in 1999, Buckley showed clips from what he thought were the best and most important episodes of Firing Line. And he included a clip of Muhammad Ali. And then, as, you know, an older man on the dais, you know, with the contemporary conservatives and liberal of that moment, he looks at the audience and he says, you know, Muhammad Ali said he KO'd Buckley, and he was right. You know, he still, many years later, saw that as a, as a moment where he'd been sort of bested. Another great example is when he had Jermaine Greer on the show, and he had had more moderate kind of liberal feminists, and she was a far-left feminist. And he really enjoyed talking to her. He disagreed with most of what she said. She was, you know, someone with a communist uh, or socialist orientation who believed in communal child-rearing. Her ideas about the family were disturbing to him as a, as a conservative and a Catholic. Um, but she was a brilliant rhetorician. You know, she could really stand up to him in terms of how she used language. And there's a great moment on that episode where they talk about the feminist attempts to impact language. Now, Buckley does not like the intrusion of words like Ms. Mm. into the lexicon. He does chairperson uh, later uh, in the uh, 80s, the idea of using the word fresh person instead of freshmen in colleges. He thought all of this was just not euphonious, as he might have put it. You know, not <laughs> so, ear-clanging. So, uh, yeah, so just aesthetically? Ear-clanging syntax. What? So just aesthetically he was against yes. it? Yes, yes. <laughs> He felt that he was aesthetically against it, and he really felt that the use of words like man and mankind, that these were synecdoche, mm. and that language should have a place for synecdoche, you know, that that was just normal, and that everyone knew if you referred to mankind, you were just using man as a standard for all of humankind, and that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And so he asked for main career, you know, Scott Forsman, the textbook publisher, says you should never refer to early man. You should only refer to early humans, and, you know, do you agree with that? And, you know, do you agree with Ms. and all this kind of stuff? And Jermaine Greer says these kinds of changes are facile, just changing a few words here and there. They don't get at the deep structural issues. So if you call a woman who's married Ms. instead of Mrs., you've accomplished nothing. You have not changed the nature of marriage and the nuclear family. Now, he didn't want to change the nature of marriage and the nuclear family, but he was so pleased to talk to a feminist who articulately explained why she didn't like language to be changed either, just from a totally different point of view. And he said, so you think the, the emphasis on language is, you know, is absurd, it's a waste of time. And she said, well, it's just, you know, it's the wrong avenue to pursue politically. He really enjoyed that conversation. It was very heady, you know, very different from anything you would see on TV, you know, in the early 70s, right? And he wrote her a thank you note afterwards, thanking for for being on the show, and he ended by saying, God damn it, you're good. <laughs> and it's just such a beautiful, gracious moment, you know? Like, you might think she's kind of nuts, but yeah, she is a great person to argue with, and ultimately he wanted to further conservatism, but he wanted to have interesting arguments with people, and that's not something that we see on TV very often. Well, that's, that's so interesting, because and you, you point this out on a number of occasions in the book, that what was 
Of central importance to Buckley, it seemed, was simply that his guest would be fun to argue with. You you said mm-hmm. in another episode, Buckley talks with Christopher Hitchens, the Nation columnist, as well as mm-hmm. R. Emmett Terrell. Uh, and it seems in this episode that he just, Buckley just likes Hitchens more. Why do you think that was? That's a great episode. <laughs> and, you know, I, I interviewed Christopher Buckley for the book. William F. Buckley's son, and he said, oh, that was just a delicious evisceration, you know. He he really laid into Terrell, and Terrell had written a book called The Liberal Liberal Crack-Up. And the book was a very snide attack on liberals, and Buckley had read it to prepare for the show and had lots of notes, and he had research assistants to help him prepare. And it seems to me that, having seen the show a few times, he thought that some of what Terrell was doing was sort of satirical, that he was kidding and being so over the top in his insults and so on. And it turned out that Terrell really wasn't. You know, he was being genuinely insulting. And Hitchens said, um, you know, I disagree with many people, and I, you know, I express that, but I would never call them names like you do. I would never say that someone was from a horrible old bag or an old douchebag or an old bitch, or, which are not words that Terrell had used, but he was just giving an example of the way you would attack someone on gender terms because Terrell had attacked feminists as really nasty, nasty, ugly women, um, just really gratuitously unkind to feminists. And that attack on feminism from that angle rub Buckley the wrong way. He wanted to be a gentleman and attack feminism. And I think he recognized Hitchens, you know, being more polite than his guest mm. and more thoughtful. And at one point he actually turns to Terrell and he says, why do you say you don't uh, attack people in your book? Because you do. <laughs> and he's really fighting with Hitchens. He's just saying, you know, I read the book and I, you know, I know what you did. Um, and so at several moments, he realized, Buckley seems to intuit that the conversation with Hitchens is just going to be more interesting than with this other guy. And so Hitchens, Hitchens sort of turns towards Buckley, and it's almost like they peel off, you know, like at a dinner party again, uh, and just have their own chat on the side, and Charles just sort of sitting there waiting for someone to pay attention to him. <laughs> so it's a really wonderful example of, you know, Buckley having fun talking to someone on the other side. And Hitchens, you know, really rubbed him the wrong way on numerous occasions. I mean, Hitchens wrote a book attacking Mother Teresa, Mm. and he called it the missionary position, you know. (laughs) And Buckley wrote a note to his producer after that and said, you know, I never want to see this guy ever again. But he couldn't keep holding that grudge because Hitchens was too charming. And so, you know, just a few weeks after he sent that letter to his producer, he saw a wonderful piece by Hitchens, I think it's a New Yorker. He sent a note to his son and said, you know, wow, this is fantastic stuff. And sure enough, you know, Hitchens was back on the show because his language, his, his uh, beautiful use of language was sort of too much for Buckley to resist. And, and you mentioned earlier as well, I mean, even though the Buckley sided with or liked to argue with liberals, the show was still in a sense, a defense of conservatism. In, in your book, you write, quote, to truly understand Firing Line, we must consider how Buckley used the show to stake a claim for what then seemed a pipe dream, the possibility of a thriving conservative movement purged, as you say, of the conspiracy theorists, the extremists, and the kooks. Do you think he was successful at at purging the kooks? I mean, because people like Gore Vidal would describe Buckley himself as a kook or even a a crypto-Nazi. Did he ever successfully shed that baggage? He was not perceived as a kook and a nut, except, of course, by Gore Vidal. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Maybe some others, right? But he was more respectable than those John Birch Society types. And I would say there has always been a complicated sort of push-pull between conservatives and extremists on the right, just like liberals and extremists on the left have a complicated sort of push-pull and, you know, wondering how far their their party might go in one direction or another in response to contemporary events. So, you know, in the 60s and into the early 70s and during Vietnam, the, the, the Democrats certainly shifted left, and right? Then later they would shift more to the center and, you know, the, the you know, who did this massive welfare reform? Clinton right? did things that would have been what Republicans might have done, you know, some years before. So there's always a kind of back and forth uh, management act, I would say, whether it's, you know, on the conservative side or on the liberal side. Buckley did a good job of reshaping the image of conservatism and even 
those who disagreed with him mostly thought he was respectable and upright. Certainly Gore Vidal did not, and he, they had a real personal animosity. But did he permanently push the fringes out of conservatism? Absolutely not. And he noted that late in his life. He said once to his son Christopher, you know, I feel like I spent my whole life kind of trying to push the kooks out of the movement. Mm. And they keep coming back, you know. He didn't put it this way, but it's, it's like a weed. You keep pruning the lawn, and then it comes back. And I think that was one way you probably thought about it sometimes. So that you have, you know, when Obama was first elected, the birthers and certain elements of the, the Tea Party and so on who became very extremist and kooky. Even the John Birch Society made a brief reappearance in 2008. So it was not a, it was not a permanent thing, for sure. But was it a major shift? for conservatism in the late 60s and the 70s and 80s, absolutely. And you could argue that Buckley was a major player, not the only one, um, and perhaps not even the most important one, but a key player in changing the landscape and the perception of conservatism in such a way that Ronald Reagan, uh, who was an unthinkable candidate in the late 60s and early 70s, was seen as a respectable candidate who could be elected president by 1980. So one of the fascinating things about the show, I think, as you point out, because it was on for so long, it really charts many of the changes that happened on the right from the 60s to the 90s. At the same time, it it also, in a sense, broadcasted Buckley's own political transformations, such as they were. So you can actually see moments in the show where maybe he's not necessarily changing in his own mind, but um, very obviously granting a point here and there mm-hmm. you, you said mm-hmm. you cite the evolution of his views on civil rights uh, given his engagement with the black power movement on the show as an example you even write that absolutely co- well, and, and this is Sorry. a good well no it's fine this is a great line i just I'll, I'll feed you this line and then you can run with it I, I love this line quote firing line was perhaps the single venue in the mainstream american mass media where black power got a fair shake in the late 1960s and early 70s could you talk about that Absolutely. You know, after Martin Luther King's assassination, there were a small number of local public affairs shows that did allow black power voices on TV in Chicago and New York. Um, but those were short-lived and they really struggled. And basically, it was hard, it was very hard for black power to get a hearing in the mass media. Um, it was reported as in, in sort of uh, sensationalist ways. Uh, anything that a black power person said that sounded violent, you know, it was about guns and stuff like that, that would that would be the lead. That would be the headline. And the actual arguments uh, for why black power people were say, favoring revolution uh, were not often expressed in the mass media. And in fact, there's a moment during the in the Nixon years when Nixon basically conveyed to the network that they should stop covering black power. And he also wanted them to stop covering Vietnam, and they did not stop covering Vietnam, thank goodness, but they did really scale down their coverage of black power. And Nixon's stance was, you know, their radicals don't give them the free airtime. And Buckley felt like, well, they're radicals, and I disagree with them. Let's hear what they have to say. And I think that like a lot of, of Americans who had been resistant to elements of the civil rights movement, when black power came along, Buckley would see, oh, their demands were more moderate and they wanted to work within the system. This is, a, you know, this is, sounds much better than black power. So there were certain Americans who had resisted civil rights who then saw black power by contrast and civil rights started to look better to them. And I think that's part of, of what happened with, with Buckley's reaction. Um, he, but, you know, some years later, as an older man, when people asked him, you know, was there anything you were wrong about over the years, he specifically said civil rights. Mm-hmm. And what he said was that I thought that uh, the federal government did not need to intervene, and I was wrong. Nothing would have, it would not have happened. So these changes the civil rights movement finally brought would not have come without federal intervention. And one thing that is really fascinating, fascinating about watching the show, kind of pre-Black Power, uh, just when he has all these civil rights guests on, I'm going to put this. Okay, he Buckley has a strong states' rights perspective, mm-hmm. right? So he's he's saying racism is wrong, it's immoral. Segregation is wrong, it's immoral. Buckley actually said you should favor uh, minorities in making hiring decisions. That's morally correct. 
to do that until it's no longer a need, until people of color, I don't think he ever said that, until blacks, African-Americans gotten gotten advanced far enough that they don't need preferential treatment. Preferential treatment is fair. He said all that. He just didn't think the government should mandate it, right? It shouldn't be required. It, it should be an ethical, moral choice that people make. So there's obviously some idealism there, right? And to have the federal government mandate it was a violation of states' rights. So he has his argument with civil rights people. Then he has on states' rights advocates on the show, people like Strom Thurmond, right, the senator from South Carolina. And you would assume that they would agree about everything. But they don't, because the states' rights folks, like Thurmond or like George Wallace, um, are deeply racist. Mm. And their states' rights stand may be sincere, but it's intertwined with a strong racism, whereas Buckley just believes the state's right side, and I don't, do not believe is a deep racist in the same way they are. And so the difficulties and the contradictions of the position become clear on the show when he's debating with Strom Thurmond and expecting Thurmond to agree with him, and Thurmond won't even acknowledge that the KKK is preventing people mm. from black people from voting in South Carolina that there's intimidation that prevents blacks from voting in South Carolina. When Buckley advances that thought, Thurman says, oh, I don't know anything about that. I've never seen evidence of that. You know, he's like in this weird lawyerly kind of denial mode, you know? Well, that's so, that's, that's interesting because you yeah. also point out, and I, I rewatched this episode um, uh, after you mentioned it in your book, or, or after I read it, uh, the George Wallace episode where Buckley uh, sort of, takes Wallace to task on quote-unquote out-segging other uh, states, mm-hmm. uh, out-segregating mm-hmm. that is, and and George Wallace George Wallace is, is very upset, visibly upset about it, and actually suggests that, that New York is more segregated than than his state, and Buckley just, just giggles at the accusation, just thinks it's hilarious, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. there's a lot of tension on, on that one too that you're describing that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always amazing because you know, Buckley's not trying to prove that Wallace is a racist. He feels like everybody knows that. He's trying to show he's not a conservative and right. that, you know, he's actually very open to New Deal liberalism. And he opens the, the introduction to the show, as you just referenced, by saying that Time magazine had once reported that after losing an earlier election, Wallace had said he'd never be outsegged again. And Wallace is just getting furious and kind of tugging at his cuffs. And he says, the word seg is not in the Southerner's vocabulary. I never said that. He's so indignant. And what he had actually said quite horrifically was that he would never be out-niggered again. Oh. What he said was patently worse than I will not be out-segged again. And I don't know if Buckley didn't know the true story or just didn't want to use the N-word on his show um, at that moment. But um, it's it's such a weird moment where Wallace is just kind of trying to spin this in his own populist direction and take the argument in a different direction to show that the liberal media is against him, is against Southerners, is against the people. Um, it's just straight up kind of populist demagoguery, which, of course, now feels very contemporary to us in the middle of this election, even as it's you know very specific to what's going on with race and civil rights and so on in the, in the late 60s. Right, and and it seems like one point you you seem to make is that you really can chart the trajectory of changing opinions about race relations just by watching Buckley give talks. And I, you cite um, this wasn't on Firing Line, but I think you begin your book by referencing Buckley's debate with James Baldwin at it was it was mm-hmm. Oxford or Cambridge, in which Buckley really is just is just patently destroyed by by Baldwin. Baldwin was just at at this moment a better speaker and and he had the in a sense he had the truth on his side, right? Um mm-hmm, and you and you can see Buckley lose this debate and in a sense you could kind of see him change his mind after that debate. Could you talk about that a bit too? The the Cambridge debate with Baldwin in I believe that was 65 it was before firing line. I mean, it might have even been 64. It was, it was it's something that people who supported Buckley for mayor, you know, in 1965, referenced in letters that they wrote to him. So they had seen it and thought that Buckley did a good job, that they were Buckley fans. But most people agreed that Baldwin had won that debate. And the subject of the debate was the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. And Baldwin had argued him. And I think Buckley was very confident because he was the seasoned debater. He was the guy who had been trained in debate at Yale. And he goes to Cambridge wearing a tuxedo because he knows that that is how most people debate at Cambridge. And, you know, 
Baldwin's wearing a dark suit and a tie and doesn't, you know, all the, know all the, de- he's of course incredibly articulate, but he doesn't know all the debate rules and so on that Buckley does. And so Buckley, you know, confident he's going to win. And he's out argued. And uh, unlike on firing line where you could sort of intuit or have your own opinion about who won the discussion at Cambridge, there's a vote. And Baldwin won, uh, I can't remember if it was two to one or three to one. Mm. He, he won very handily. And Buckley had two other debates at Cambridge, one with Jermaine Greer, which he also lost, <laughs> and one with John Kenneth Galbraith, and that, and that one Buckley won. So, you know, he lost that debate, and he really, he, he did not think he had been argued by Baldwin. In fact, even as Buckley's attitudes about civil rights and racism did shift over time, he never, I guess for days, he might say, although I don't think it was personal in the way that word might connote, but... He never forgave Baldwin for winning that debate insofar as he thought that Baldwin was much too negative about America and its ingrained racism, and that he, that basically Baldwin's view of America was deeply pessimistic. And Buckley saw himself as a more of an optimist. So yes, there had been all this racism in America's past; it might linger into the present, but it could be eliminated in the future, and so on, without radical revolution, and so on. And so he actually he never had Baldwin on firing line, but he referenced Baldwin sporadically over the years, I would say for 33 years, mm. as a kind of example of excessively negative thinking about, you know, what is possible uh, in America. And he saw Baldwin as someone who kind of uh, hated America, and that was a low insult that Buckley tended not to insult his guests, but sometimes he would have someone on you say, so why do you hate America? <laughs> it was a real, when did you stop beating your wife kind of question, and people would be like, I, I don't hate America, I just feel like it's flawed, and they would go into their argument. Um, but uh, with Baldwin, he never changed his mind. He thought this guy was really um, off base. Hmm. So uh, an- another sort of purpose of the show that you cite, or at least a theme in the show, was opposition to communism. Uh, as, as you point out, even after anti-communism was sort of out of style in American life. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would still mm-hmm. c- come up on the show. I think you mentioned like in an episode with Hugh Hefner or something, uh, the, the <laughs> question of collective action comes up. Uh, <laughs> could, could you talk it, about that? I, yeah. I think I was holding that up as a, as a kind of uh, absurdity. It, it didn't actually happen. Oh. But the point was you, he could be talking to anyone. He could okay. be talking to Hefner or Timothy Leary or Allen Ginsberg, and you knew at any moment he might say something about the communist threat. Right. Because he was Buckley was a real cold warrior, you know, and, you know, his first book out in Manny Yale, everyone knows that one. But fewer people are aware that his second book was called McCarthy and His Enemies, which he co-wrote with his brother-in-law, uh, Brent Bozel. And um, that's an interesting book because he basically upholds the right of Hugh Act to, to, to do what it did. He upholds the House Committee on American Activities singling people out, attacking them as communists or fellow travelers, and and so on and so forth. But he acknowledges the flaws of McCarthy, the man. You know, that he, he doesn't actually say, McCarthy lied a lot. Uh, but he was willing to say, well, we looked at his speeches and we found something like 65 different moments where he misrepresented something. He got something wrong, you know. And basically... Buckley got that McCarthy was bad for the conservative movement, that it was bad for their image, that his manner was negative and counterproductive. And, you know, Buckley and Bozell actually sent a copy of the manuscript of that book to McCarthy himself as a courtesy, because they were so sympathetic to his cause. You know, take a look at this book we've written, see what you think. And McCarthy uh, wrote a letter saying, you know, I just can't get through it. It's too hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's just over his head, you know, which is really sad. But I guess kind of proof Buckley's point. So, you know, he here was someone who supported McCarthyism, right, but not McCarthy in the same at the same level, you know. But on his show, he was very concerned about communism over the years. And I actually think one of the very best episodes and it's a great kind of starter episode for someone who's curious about firing line and, you know, wants to know more. A great uh, third episode is the one with Victor Navasky, the former editor of The Nation, called, um, I believe, How Can Ex-Communists Cooperate? Another, you know, when did you stop being your wife kind of thing, because, you know, Buckley's answer is, well, can they cooperate? And, you know, uh, it's obviously going into it very negatively. And Navasky's there to talk about his new book about the blacklist, the Hollywood blacklist. 
And Navasky wants to talk about this kind of inquisition and how unfairly actors and writers and producers and all these folks in Hollywood have been, uh, how poorly they've been treated and that there was strategy of forcing confessions from people when you knew everything they were going to confess. They weren't getting new information. It was a kind of public shaming attempt at humiliation. And Navasky, you know, spent a whole book with tons of interviews. It's a wonderful book attacking that. And Buckley never felt sympathy for the blacklisted people, would, would say that, there, you know, there was more of a blacklist for conservatives, you know, that it was conservatives who were being fired from academia for their beliefs and so on. And, which, you know, I thought was a very misguided thing for him to say. But what his typical strategy was in dealing with someone attacking the blacklist and HUAC, but the typical strategy was to shift gears and say, well, what about Solzhenitsyn? What about the gulags? What about Mao in deliberately inducing a famine in China and killing millions of his own people? And so for Buckley, he always had an eye on international communism and the atrocities that happened in the name of international communism. And so he would shift gears away from the domestic front to the international one. And basically, Solzhenitsyn, who was on one episode of Firing Line, like his experiences in the gulag would always trump any experience that someone could describe of, say, you know, some poor uh, set designer who'd been mm-hmm. blacklisted, you know, or some guy in radio, you know, couldn't get on radio. Buckley thought that was inconsequential compared to the bigger picture. And so even though I completely agree with Navasky's arguments in naming names, and, you know, from a liberal perspective, I feel like he won that argument with, with Buckley, from watching all of these episodes, I forged a better understanding of where Buckley was coming from and what it meant to always have that kind of international picture in mind and not, you know, why he was sort of blind to certain domestic issues around anti-communism. So you also explore, quote, how Firing Line charted the ebb and flow of conservative reactions to and against uh, feminism over a 30-year mm-hmm. period. Could you talk about that? Who did Buckley debate with about feminism on his show, and how did his attitude or posture toward that movement differ from other movements like the hippie movement? Well, oh, like the hippie movement. <laughs> That's interesting because with hippies, I mean, Allen Ginsberg is another great episode for people to watch. I've talked to many conservatives about the show who will say, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite episodes. Ginsberg is so charming. You know, he uh, at one point asked Buckley if he can sing. And Buckley's like, well, how, you know, he's worried that Ginsburg might sing for like an hour. And he's like, oh, no. And so he does a Hare Krishna, you know, and I think he's playing the harmonium. I can't remember. He has huh. a musical instrument with him, you know. <laughs> and at the end of it, uh, Buckley says, well, that was the most unhurried Krishna I've ever heard. <laughs> and he's sort of charmed by him. And then Ginsburg says, writes a poem in its entirety. And Ginsburg was warned, warned before he came on the show not to use profanity, which disturbed him. And he uses the word vagina in the poem. And you could tell he's just really excited to say the word. And Buckley doesn't wince. He's just like, well, it's just part of the poem, whatever, you know. But the thing is, with hippies, he understands that they think the world is flawed. And their ways to fix it are very different from Buckley's way to fix the world. Buckley sees the world as flawed as well. But he kind of, he thinks they're sort of strange and out there, but he respects them, I think, for being different and weird and pushing back against the mainstream. Buckley saw himself as outside the mainstream and as sort of radical and having, you know, big ideas that most people didn't agree with. And I think he felt a kind of empathy with the hippies from that angle. With feminism... He just didn't get it. Why would you want to overturn the family? Why would you, you know, what's wrong with these institutions that help us maintain order? You know, the family, the church, et cetera. You know, these, the, the kind of regulatory structures of, of social cohesion, you know, that feminists were questioning. He, he didn't get it. So he's always on a different wavelength from them in certain ways. But he thought, well, this is a major social movement, and I have to have people on and, you know, talk it through. But he would do it as a, as a kind of gentleman. And so I call the chapter on feminism 
you know, chivalrous pugilism. Because on the one hand, he wants to knock out this movement. On the other hand, he will do it as a perfect gentleman. He will be chivalrous about the whole thing. He will not insult these women or say the kind of horrible mainstream media stuff about, you know, they have hairy armpits and they wear ugly shoes and this kind of stupid stuff that you see in the mainstream media. He wasn't going to do that. So he had Betty Friedan on pretty early, the author of The Feminine Mystique, and he thought she seems like a perfect, and she kind of ticked off secondly feminism in America. She should be a perfect guest for firing line. The problem was she was a pretty terrible speaker. She just, she might have done okay with prepared comments, but she, you know, on her feet, she was somewhat incoherent. And it just, it's, a, it's a pretty bad show. He doesn't invite her back for something like, uh, it's in the book, but maybe 18 years. And then he has her on in the 90s when he stages these large two-hour formal firing line debates about feminism and multiculturalism. So he has her back later with Ariana Huffington and other, back when she was a conservative, <laughs> um, other big names. So he sort of cuts loose for Dan. He has uh, Jermaine Greer on, as I mentioned earlier. He has Claire Booth Luce on, who's very conservative, but also very feminist. And so he, she comes, she asks to be on the show to talk about the women's liberation movement, and he can't say no to her. He's very fond of her. And so they have a big debate, and she spends most of the show explaining why Jesus was a feminist. And I think Buckley can't even make a counter-argument because he just finds that so weird. Mm. So he just sort of lets her have her say. So it's an interesting space to see feminist views, you know, expressed over the years. The thing is, by the, you know, by the 90s, and I, would, I guess to some extent in the 80s, he's sort of seen that, that movement as having crested, sort of ready to move on. And his go-to feminist guest is this woman, Harriet Tilpel, who had been a lawyer in the ACLU and very progressive, got the ACLU uh, dealing with reproductive rights and gay rights at a moment, you know, for the first time. Before that, it had really been on their agenda. She helped push that onto their agenda. So she was really the liberal's liberal. And the thing is, what was interesting about Harriet Pilpel is that she was a little bit older. She wore these kind of elaborate jewelry sets, and her hair was kind of tall, you know, <laughs> sort of swooped up, you know, and gray, sort of silver, and she had sort of cat's eye glasses, you know. She was not the image of the kind of bra burner type feminist of, of stereotypes. And she was just on the show standing up for free speech and reproductive rights. And he didn't bother with the more radical types for the last 10 years or so of the show. And she, I feel, kind of normalized the image of feminism. And he didn't mean for that to happen, but because she was so sort of smart and average and this older Jewish lady lawyer, you know, it just wasn't the kind of out there image of feminism that some people had. And so ultimately, I think he uh, did some good for the feminist movement um, by having Topel on the show. And then after she passed away, he didn't really find a feminist replacement. And in the very late years, he had a number of debates on multiculturalism and uh, political correctness and so on. Mm. And it's, it's just very negative and it's sort of, those shows aren't super strong. They've kind of lost the more engaging intellectual edge that he had in earlier discussions about feminism. He's, in terms of women's issues, he's sort of become a cranky old man <laughs> by the late 90s, I would say. So you point out in your preface, and you also pointed out a few moments ago, that you dis you disagree with Buckley on, on most of the issues that come up. You sort of you, your perspective is aligned with that of of of, of the liberal critique of Buckley. Yet, yet so mm -hmm. much of your book is, if not praise of of Buckley, then certainly an effort to engender some respect for him. Have have I got that right? Why write about him in this manner? Well, I do respect him, and I. I let me back up, and I'll, I'll get back to the roots of one way of explaining why I wrote this book. There are two ways to explain how I wrote the book. One is, look at the political moment right now. Look at what is going on with the shouting matches on Fox and MSNBC in the current election. We need to be thinking about a civil way to talk about politics, clearly. And so I felt like this book could help stake that claim. But the other reason I wrote the book is more personal and about my own intellectual trajectory, and the, the previous book that I wrote was called What's Fair on the Air? Cold War Right-Wing Broadcasting in the Public Interest. And that was about the right-wing extremists who emerged on radio and television, mostly to oppose civil rights, 
in the wake of Barry Goldwater's defeat in 1964. And some of them were fundamentalists. Some of them were opposing sex education. They are, in some ways, breaking ground that would then be further developed by Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. The new Christian right comes into the media spotlight in the 80s. And Buckley was a peripheral player in that book. He comes in and out of the book numerous times as the voice of a more rational and sophisticated conservatism. And, and as I said earlier, it's kind of pushing the, trying to push the extremes out. And as I was finishing that book, I thought, this guy is one of the most interesting guys in this book. I want to learn more about him. And I've been watching things like the Dan Smoot Report, which was a newsletter, a radio show, and a TV show out of Texas. And there had been a moment in the archive when I watched Smoot talking about the Selma to Montgomery March during civil rights. And he refers to the march as an orgy of depravity and how all the marchers were like, uh, drinking beer and fornicating, and just this most nasty, horrible attack, and just really vulgar and racist. And I actually left the archive early that day. I couldn't take it anymore. I mm. felt like this material, I need to understand it. People need to know about it, but it's kind of harming me as a person and a scholar to be exposed myself to this stuff for so much time. And then I started watching Firing Line, and I thought, this stuff is not only not harming me, the way that the other stuff was, and, and, and harming me is probably a bit melodramatic, but it's kind of like, you know, in Videodrome, if you've seen that Cronenberg movie, yeah. <laughs> we're watching the TV part two. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want to watch this horrible negative material. <laughs> if I watch Firing Line, it actually makes me smarter. It makes me a better thinker, you know? And I understand, you know, how conservative rhetoric works better. I understand liberal and left-wing rhetoric, how it works better. I learn... Uh, just history and facts and figures and, you know, just so much. And also I saw all these great personalities and, you know, you don't learn a ton from watching Norman Mailer on the show, except he's a wonderful conversationalist and they're just going at it in verbally in such fun and interesting ways. So you can be entertained by the show. You can learn things from the show. And so that is, you know, one big reason I wrote the book. I was like, I want to spend a lot of time with this guy and with his TV show and learn through this lens about America from the 60s through the 90s, mostly through the 80s is kind of the emphasis of the book. And as I worked through all these episodes and read Buckley's books and learned more about him, I certainly came to increase my respect for him even and to understand his position, even as I would say, you know, that I'm still basically a liberal. But, you know. um, but I guess you could say that I'm a liberal rather than, a leftist, insofar as many farther on the left, like from Gore Vidal's kind of position, would see Buckley as just a totally irredeemable fiend and scoundrel. Just like he didn't support federal intervention in civil rights from the beginning, and therefore he's just an irredeemable bastard. You know, there is mm. that understanding of him. And having spent a lot of time with him, I feel that that's kind of misguided, that he actually pushed public discourse in a really positive direction, whether you agree with him or not. So you've seen, we were talking about this, you've seen the film Best of Enemies about the debate mm -hmm. between Buckley and the liberal Gore Vidal at the 68 Democratic National Convention. It seems like that film, though it slightly idolizes the early days of TV debate at first, as well as the sort of patrician, ideas-heavy debating style of the two subjects, it nevertheless seems to assign to Buckley and Vidal some of the fault for turning... American political TV into sort of unhelpful shouting head matches. What, have you, what do you think of that position? I, first I'll say, I recommend that film to everyone. I think it is a terrific movie. I think it's really well researched. They've done wonderful archival footage. It's just a really fantastic film. However, you're right, at the end, in the last five minutes or so, it, it really is quite at the end. They, they basically say, you know, this is the beginning of the end in a way. This is the beginning of Fox and MSNBC and maybe Rush Limbaugh, the talk radio guys and so on. This is the beginning of one-sided vitriol or shouting matches and so on. And I, I do believe that's an overstatement for several reasons. One, Vidal was always very proud of that. It's early in the movie, he shows a picture of himself on that show with, on the ABC shows that, you know, that went awry during 1968. And the, the photo's in his bathroom, like maybe over the toilet. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just pointing again very snidely to, you know, oh, I really 
beat Buckley. And Buckley did feel beaten on that show because he lost his temper on the show. Right. And he fought, and he felt bad about that for the rest of his life. I cursed on national television. I let this guy get under my skin, you know, and was uncouth on national television. And so, you know, he, he was never like, really let him have it, you know. I tried to punch him in the nose. Like, he thought, oh, God, I wouldn't, what happened, you know. So, and, and the film does reference that. But what the, the film doesn't do a deep dive into, which I think is really important, is that the move from a kind of public sphere of political discourse that, you know, is what is in place in the three-network era, NBC, CBS, ABC, and then later PBS, right? This place where debate tends to be, quote, fair and balanced, <laughs> in part because there's so few networks, in part because the FCC actually has this thing in place called the Fairness Doctrine that mandates if you cover controversial issues of public importance, you have to get the other point of view. You can't just be one-sided because there's a scarcity out there. Not everyone can broadcast the way everyone could write a pamphlet or get out a typewriter. Since not everyone has a broadcast station, we have to manage the airways. So Reagan derailed the communications industry in the 80s. The Fairness Doctrine is suspended. This, op this opens up the way for cable programming. It opens up the way for lots of terrible TV, like cops and infomercials and stuff like that, right? And it also, also opens the way for HBO and Showtime to really grow and develop for, I kind of feel like if you, if you hate cartoons designed to sell toys and nothing else, you know, well, okay, blame Ronald Reagan. If you love The Wire, well, blame Ronald Reagan for that, too. <laughs> and, you know, he probably wouldn't have liked the show. But, you know, opening up the, you know, opening up cable as a possibility enables the creation of niche programming, you know, for small audiences. So, so TV now is for people who love to garden and people who want to buy a house and flip it and people who love pets and people who love right-wing politics and people who love left-wing politics and people who like sophisticated satire and people who like reality shows about housewives and hot tubs and, you know, this kind of stuff that is junk to me, but some people like it. So deregulation creates all of that. And that is the big kind of policy and American, you know, media history picture that people have to understand to figure out how did we get from the days of, you know, genteel firing line and sort of neutral, bland news coverage to, you know, Fox and MSBC and people arguing so much. It's not because Buckley and Vidal had a big fight on ABC in 1968. That was a, a big negative moment, and it looks a little bit like some of what we see now. But the bigger picture are these changes in the communications industry and deregulation and so on. So in your conclusion, you write that the television of the firing line days was, this is the phrase you use, a push medium. That is, audience, audiences took what they were given. Uh, now it seems like, as you say, uh, television is a pull medium. Audiences take what they want. I think in your previous answer, you were getting at this a bit, but what do you mean by those two terms and how has this shift from these two kinds of media affected political discourse in your view? Well, in theory, the shift from the push medium to the poll medium, which I'll unpack a little bit, in theory, that's extremely positive, right? To go from an environment where there's three networks and you just take what they're given and, you know, there's no VCRs, there's no DVRs, there's no DVDs, there's no streaming. So, you know, if you miss your favorite show, you're just out of luck until reruns. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the menu of things that you can look at is, is slim. And the networks literally used to say that what they were striving for, you know, in the 70s and 60s was LOP, least offensive programming. Now, what a low standard in the days of, you know, shows like Zeke or, mm -hmm. I don't know, Bob's Burgers, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. There's all kinds of fun stuff. It's not all political, right? But... There's so much, there's such a range of sophisticated programming now. And to think that the people creating our media used to say, we just want the least offensive programming. Oh, you know, that's terrible. So that's the, the way to understand what, you know, the, the notion of push media. Like it just goes out there and you have so few choices and you just take what you get. And, you know, you might, you know, MPN pushes in a new direction with like Mary Tyler Moore and Norman Lear with all the family. You know, a few new things happen that are quite interesting. But the, the choices are kind of limited before cable, right? So you would think if you could open that up, that's inherently positive. That plethora of choices means 
diversity and that's inherently good. And there's something to that. But if all your political programming is very, very niche, so that people only listen on radio or watch TV that they totally agree with, I have to feel that's negative for the culture. It's negative for society, for people not to encounter opposing points of view in thoughtful ways and to basically live in a kind of echo chamber. And it makes it easier for people to listen to populist demagogue-type politicians than it might have been in the past. There have always been populist demagogue politicians. You know, you can look at Trump and you can look at Wallace and go, hmm, what do they have in common, right? But if you live in a media environment where people tend to only encounter views that they agree with 99% of the time, it's not good for the nature of political discourse, political discussion, and political debate in the culture. Is there any chance a program like Firing Line would be able to make it in today's poll media landscape? So uh, would the show really have to be fundamentally different than what it was in the past? Higher production values, for instance, things like this? I like yeah. To, yeah, I like to think there's a possibility, although it's a, it's a little bit pie in the sky. I think thinking mm. about it and talking about it is a useful uh, thing to do. It's a good exercise to just think about how the key would be better. Of course... I, you know, I talk in the conclusion about Firing Line 2.0 as, as sort of a possibility, but the reality is Buffy was a very unique figure, and it would be hard to find someone with his eclectic range, his articulate way of expressing himself, his Catholic range of interest, you know, little C Catholic. I mean, this guy knew mm-hmm. a lot about a lot of stuff. He put out a VHS two- or three-part, you know, PBS series on celestial navigation in the 80s. <laughs> How do you navigate using the stars and Astrolab and the sun? <laughs> he, he was a yachtsman and he went around the world a few times without fancy equipment, just using celestial navigation, right? Just send you a lot. <laughs> so you're not, if you know, finding a host like that for a TV show does seem a bit far-fetched. It'd be really hard. Is there the possibility uh, for sophisticated, long-form, political discussion on TV now that isn't driven by anger and frustration and so on. Yes, I think there is. I think it has to be outside of the commercial sphere. Ironically, Buckley on Firing Line argued for the free market for 33 years, but he was to some extent uh, saved by going on PBS and getting out of the commercial market. He actually had a variety of difficulties surviving in the first four years when he was syndicated before he went to PBS. And it was a better show once it wasn't interrupted by advertisements and people could just have a real discussion. So if a show like that happened today, one thing I suggest in the book is that a great home for it might be HBO. Because HBO, and they used to actually shoot Final One in HBO Studios for many years, but it's not a place that has to get advertisers right, to sponsor them. What they need to do is have high-quality programming that draws subscribers and keeps them and ideally brings more. And so if they, and, and obviously they appeal to a range of, you know, they have uh, sports, they have a range of material, right? But they, part of what they're targeting are targeting are sort of more intellectual viewers. So that's the kind of place where you could have this kind of long-form political discussion without advertisements. And I think it would have a chance. It is, we can't go back in a time capsule or a time travel machine and pretend that social media and the internet don't exist and so on. But I would like to think that if there were a new version of something like Firing Line, it wouldn't be overproduced with tons of clips and cutaways and rolling Mm -hmm. scrolls at the bottom. You just need smart people to talk to each other, you know, just to sit down and talk about a book. And you don't have to constantly snazz it up with, you know, flying graphics and stuff like that. But such a show could certainly be promoted via social media. It could have a website, this kind of thing. But it it doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles that we now think are mandatory for political discussion on TV. Professor Hendershat, thanks so much for talking with me and coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. That was Heather Hendershat, professor of film and media at MIT and the author of Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The composer of our theme music is Andrew Whitney. And this episode was edited by Rachel Bills and Kadar Jabbar, 
the new editor of our podcast. We're very glad to say hello to Gadar, but sad that we've had to say bon voyage to our good friend Travis Wheeler, the first editor of this podcast and the guy who really helped this project get off the ground. Uh, Travis, for reasons totally unrelated to this election, has moved to Canada. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's a fan of hockey, and I don't know if he likes Tim Horton, so I, I, I don't know why he moved to Canada, other than the fact that he has loved ones up there and he would like uh, to spend some time with them. So we're very glad for him. Uh, I'm gonna miss I'm gonna miss Travis a lot. I've been playing Green Day's Time of Your Life on repeat all afternoon and crying, but I've composed myself to finish this recording. Uh, Travis, this episode is dedicated to you. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.